Welcome to the podcast of Grace and Peace Church. We're glad you're journeying with us, and we hope that you find value from the teachings. If you'd like to connect or support the mission of Grace and Peace Church, check us out at graceandpeacechurch.org or find us on Instagram or Facebook. Grace and Peace. All right, so let's, um, let's continue on. If you have your Bible or phone, version app, however you want to roll with that, or you just want to watch, because I have all of what you need to see and read, it's going to be on the screen. Um, but if you want the digital bulletin, really will help you, um, I think, track beyond just what we talk about today. Um, and it'll be in your phone, as well as there's a link in there to a reference that I'm going to put at the end of this message to um, a really good podcast that I would highly encourage you to listen to this week, okay? So let's kick it off. We are in Mark. We're in a series where we're calling this Walk With Me. We're walking with Jesus. We're walking through the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, and his account of what Jesus was doing, what he was up to, and how he interacted with human beings. And um, calling this Nursing a Grudge because this is a story where for the first time, Jesus in that story isn't the center of attention, uh, but he definitely is the core of why what happens happens. Um, but this is about a guy who gets his head cut off, and his name's John. He's one of the disciples. And, um, and we're going to learn from a vantage point of what sin does to impact the world that we live in, okay? So, nursing a grudge. Let's read Let's dig through it. Let's, uh, let's see what we're talking about first, because hopefully it's not stuff that I just want to talk about. It's what Jesus wants to teach us. Um, and so uh, let's start out, chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. First off, like it's an interesting line that Mark drops in there, that his name has become well known. That Jesus wasn't just like this good teacher that a couple people knew in a couple little towns. It was like this was spreading big time, okay? And King Herod would have been obviously king, obviously a lot of power, a lot of influence in that community. And for him to hear, word had to have been massive about what Jesus was doing. So here we go. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So there's all these different ideas of who Jesus is, okay? They're not not fully grasping it. Verse 17, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. So here we start to see the unfolding of the story of what happened to John. He did this because of Herodias. His brother Philip's wife, okay, track with me. So his brothers, his brother was Philip, his wife, Herodias, now is Herod's wife. So you're tracking with me how that's a little messed up? Okay. Whom he married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's pretty messed up. Whether you're a Christian or not, somebody's going to call you out for that, right? Um, so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. So do you see why I called it nursing a grudge? Okay. She's a little angry that basically John was calling him out. But she said, um, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him. If you want to underline something, that's a really good one. 
knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So think about this. This is King Herod, the influence he has, the power he has, the the political power he has, and he's listening to John going, this is puzzling, but it's really good. I want to listen more, and I'm interested. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders because you got to take care of your men and women and right and influence and make sure that you keep doing that sort of thing. So when he leaded, when he, when he, so, sorry, when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. It's a lot. And just for reference, she would have been about 12 years old. Just throwing that out there. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? So mom, what do I do now? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried in to the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That's gnarly. That's, that doesn't happen anymore, I don't think. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The men went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is a heavy story, and it, it reads like a, like a fiction kind of a situation, right? Like, you picture this, and you're like, that's what, like, happens in movies. Like, this is, like, this is a Marvel situation, right? Uh, we've been watching a lot of Marvel movies with the girls, and so it's, like, been pretty hooked on that. But there's just, like, crazy stuff that happens, right? Like, it just doesn't make sense. And this is what's unfolding here. And so I want to look at a couple of these verses and then just look at two really big observations that I think happen here that we can learn from. Um, and the first thing is that Jesus' name, right off the bat, is really well known. And there's also a lot of mislabeling that happens to Jesus's name, right? So it's no different today. There's all kinds of people that are like, yeah, Jesus is fill in your blank, right? And maybe you've been there and we've all been there at some point where we're like, we give Jesus a label of like dude with a robe and cool sandals. And he's probably holding a peace sign. He had like long blonde hair and looked like a surfer. Like we mislabel him all the time. He definitely didn't look like that, right? Um, I'm talking about the peace sign. You probably didn't know what that meant. Um, Just kidding. Um, But no, he was Middle Eastern. Like, he wouldn't have had blonde hair. You know, like, it just doesn't fit. Um, And so there's all kinds of labels that they drop here of, like, who he might have been and because he had powers and all these different things. And, um, And I think when we look at how our culture labels Jesus often, we have to recognize that everybody comes into a understanding or a conversation of who Jesus is with a preconceived notion of how they've learned it based on TV, based on conversations, based on scripture, hopefully. Um, But it's not always the case. And so I think we always need to be reminded that 
sometimes our perspective of Jesus, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, needs to be continually refined. Like we need to continually lay down preconceived notions of what we think Jesus is doing, what he's up to in our lives, and that we need to center around scripture for that. Um, so I just want to like go back to that. Like, mislabeling happens all the time, and we will be mislabeled as Christians, where people are going to go like, why did you do that? Like, I don't understand that. But hopefully, as we continue to live that out faithfully, that people start to see Jesus and see him clearly and see the truth. Um, and then verse uh, 18 and 20, we see that John spoke truth. He spoke truth about what was happening between Herod and Herodias and Philip and calls it out, right? There's a sense that like she's offended because he spoke the truth. And an interesting nuance that I see in the middle of this is Herod still had respect for John, right? Herod was in the middle of this like moment of adultery, but yet Herodias sees it as you called me out for the sin that I'm in right now and the the wrong that I've done. And I'm angry because you're calling me out, not because I've done something wrong. And Herod sees it and goes, you know what? There's some truth to that. Herod recognizes that there was authority in what John was saying. So John was able to say the truth, but still gain respect, right? There's something in that that really intrigues me as I read this and I I was studying and I was like, John was able to have that influence still, right? Like, Herod didn't just write him off because he called him out for being an adulterer, for like basically ruining his brother, right? There's still these moments where he's like, I'm puzzled. There's something about this guy, right? Like, it says that he protected him in verse 20. That there was a sense of like, this righteous, holy man, it says specifically, it demanded respect from Herod. The way that he lived, his holiness, demanded a respect from this king. And I, th- I think there's something in that, that like the way we live our lives, that maybe we can get away with saying some things, speaking truth, if people see that there's a sense of holiness, a sense of respect, of honor, that I don't think John was saying is like, you're such an idiot, like you just cheated on your, your brother, like you just totally ruined his life for your own sake, whatever. It was more of like, you shouldn't have done that. That was incorrect. And that isn't good for your life. Like it was more like he cared for Herod. He cared for Herodias. And I'm probably reading into it a little bit. But for Herod as a king to be able to say, I want to protect him. I care for him. I see some like really redeeming value and truth in who John is that he wasn't willing to behead him at that moment um, until it come down, comes down to like keeping everybody else happy in the family, right? But I just, there's something about that that spoke to me. And it, it reminded me of uh, somebody who was a mentor of mine when I first started learning about Jesus and started becoming a Christian. And I don't know if I'd like categorize myself as a Christian at that point. I was just kind of like dabbling, checking it out. Um, but there was this guy, Sam, and Sam was like this like larger than life dude. He was like seven feet tall, had this massive beard. He wasn't actually seven feet tall. He was probably just a couple inches taller than me, but um, had this massive like carpenter beard, um, tattooed sleeves, and uh, he was a guy that went to my church, the church that I started going to, Grace Chapel here in Oceanside. And um, gnarly 
scary looking like biker kind of dude, construction guy, and um, but was like this gentle giant that I knew loved Jesus. And I hung out with this guy, and I began to watch his life, and I began to see that like my idea of who this guy was wasn't totally accurate. And my preconceived ideas of him, um, initially, I, I, the first time I ever hung out with him, I was driving in his truck, and he had a Bible on his dash. And I was like, dude, that's so lame, bro. Like, what are you doing with a Bible on the dash? You know, it was like my super insecure, judgmental high school perspective of, like, the Bible. But then as I got to know this guy, I was like, dude, that's rad. He's got a Bible on his dash, you know? Like, he made it cool to have a Bible on your dash. And I was like, this is... Like, this guy loves Jesus, you know? Like, and, and there's something honest and true and real about him. And he would tell me things. Like, he would call me out on stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I do need to change that, you know? Like, it's cool to drive with your Bible on the dash now. Like, you know, it changed who I was. And it changed my perspective of who Jesus was because this guy lived out a holiness, a real life. Like, I just pictured him, I don't know, just being a punk to everybody. But he was really nice. He was just like... I don't know, gentle giant is the best way I could tell you. He's like a teddy bear, you know? And I was like, this doesn't line up, but it's good. Like, his holiness, the way that he's living, reflects Jesus. And I want more of that. That's awesome. I want to be like that. Like, that's, that's what Jesus calls us to do. And I think that's kind of what we see in John was, like, this influence that he had in other people's lives because of his holiness, because he was respected, um, because he spoke the truth. Um, and I don't think he did it in hatred. I think he spoke the truth in love. Um, I don't know, there's just something about that, that this honest representation of the gospel, of who Jesus is. And then in verse 20, we see that, again, that Herod was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So it sounds like the truth was convicting and convincing Herod of what this whole thing's all about. That it was convicting him probably. Um, and uh, the word that we see here in him being distressed, um, you see in verse 26, he's distressed with the fact that um, his wife now wants him to behead John. Um, it's the same word that you see Jesus, uh, to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where it's like there's distress where he's just torn, this brokenness, this like deeply grieved moment. So it wasn't just like Herod was like, oh, that's a bummer. Let's go behead him. It was like, oh, really? Like, I see something in this guy. There's something beautiful about what he's doing and honest and real that this this tears me apart, right? The same way Jesus felt before going to the cross. Um, And Mark does some foreshadowing here in this passage where uh, we see John is killed by Herod, um, the political power of that time, um, and we see that the same way Pontius Pilate was grieved and didn't really want to send Jesus to the cross, right? There's kind of the same thing happening. Uh, I don't know if it's like a stretch to think that, but I think that um, as you read the Gospels, there can be these like little nuances that Mark would have thrown in there of like, look, look at the contrast between the leadership of the day and what the Gospel's doing, Right? that the gospel was messing with Herod. It was messing with Pontius Pilate because Pontius Pilate has a conversation with Jesus and says, what is truth? Tell me more about this. Like, I'm intrigued. These people want you killed and I'm torn right now, right? 
Herod's doing the same thing. He's grieved. He's like, I don't know. Like, this sounds pretty real. Like, I shouldn't be doing this. Like, this isn't something I should be up to. And yet he has, like, follows through with it because there's this tension between two kingdoms. And I always talk about this, like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that's at hand. Jesus talks about it continually, right? And then the kingdom of ourselves, the kingdom of evil that wants to rule and reign and destroy us and cause this kind of destruction. And I believe that Herod saw that, that he had power to do evil or to do good, and it grieved him in his soul. I think we have those opportunities all the time. And just a random thing, but I think leaders and politicians, even today, will always face this kind of challenge of like, do we go with the consensus or do I follow the truth and like what I need to really press into? I'll leave that there because we don't need to go too far into that. But I believe that every leader and every politician has to deal with that forever. They will never have, they'll never get away from that. It's a good thing to wrestle with. Um, two major uh, observations here. So Herodias, I think, is an example of these two kingdoms at play. Um, she feels guilty for what she did. She knows that what she did was wrong and was nursing a grudge, right? When we use that word nursing a grudge, what comes to mind? We can, we can chat. When you nurse something, what comes to mind? A baby. Just taking care of it. Anything else? Brooding over it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's keep digging into that, right? She nursed that grudge. We've nursed grudges, right? You ever, like, thought of something that somebody wronged you, like, 20 years ago, and you can still think about that? We've nursed grudges before. I've done it. Like, there's things that people have done in my life where I still hold on to it, and I try every single day to let go of those things as much as I can. But she intentionally nursed this grudge. She intentionally moved towards it. I think the only thing you should be nursing, in my opinion, is in and out shakes. you got to nurse those, right? It's like, take the lid off and just forget the straw, right? That's the only thing we should be nursing. So nursing a grudge, all that does is perpetuate the kingdom of evil, of divisiveness, of sin, of death, of destruction. She's just perpetuating that. And you ultimately see how her nursing the grudge ends in what? A guy's head on a platter. That's pretty gnarly. Like, if you think about that, it goes from, ah, it's just nursing a grudge, to a guy getting his head cut off and presented on a platter for everyone to see so that everyone can see the power and the authority of, the, of that day. But we have these two kingdoms at play. And I think that Herod, even after that, even displaying that kind of physical power that he had, probably still went to bed at night going, that was wrong. If it grieved him the same way that it grieved Jesus, like in that process of like, my heart is broken, this hurts, I don't think it just went away quickly. Like, oh, we just beheaded a guy that I really respected because of his holiness. I don't think that just went away. I think that the power, the kingdom of God was still moving, still doing powerful things in his life. And still, I think other people saw that that power is far more superior than a dude that can chop a guy's head off. And I think if we continue to like, 
I guess, think in terms of a kingdom that says we're going to nurse grudges, we're going to be angry at people, we're going to continue to be resentful, we're going to continue to be unforgiving. I think that that kind of kingdom is not a world we all want to live in, right? That is not a place that we want to live in. And what we see on display here is the kingdom of God is bigger, more powerful, stronger than any of this. And I think that's what Mark displays a little bit of here of like, Herod thought he had power. Herodias thought she had power. But let's show you, like, as we continue to read, what real power looks like. Um, The kingdom comes up repeatedly. The kingdom of God is filled with humility. It's filled with forgiveness. It's filled with new life. The kingdom is described over and over um, as a man who finds a treasure and says, I'm going to do everything I can to buy this, to get this land. A woman who loses a coin in her house and says, I'm going to tear my house apart to find this coin because it's so much more valuable than anything else. That's how the kingdom is described. And I think that that's on display here. Um, I think the, the next little nuance that I found super interesting was the fact that the kingdom of destruction, of evil, whatever, the opposite of God's kingdom, um, really took place in her life in the fact that it became generational. So she had an opportunity to end that right there, but what happens when her daughter has an opportunity to do something great, to inherit the kingdom? What does she ask for? Was it something that she actually desired? It was something that her mother desired. And this isn't about daughters and mothers. This is about parenting. I think this is about the opportunity we have as parents. And sorry if I'm leaving some people out of the room, but I think we all have an opportunity, whether you're a parent or not, to invest in the next generation. And I think that a generational thing that took place here is that her daughter then learned what it meant to be hateful, vengeful, angry, right? Because it wasn't even her own desire. Like she could have had half of his kingdom. And what we see on display here is that she's like, no, here's what I want. And it wasn't like, no, what do you want? What's the good thing? What's the beautiful thing that would help our family further along? No, it was, I want you to carry out this grudge that I have, that I've been nursing forever. And tells the 12-year-old girl, basically, go and make sure that dad goes and cuts this guy's head off, right? Like, and I just, like, I thought about that, and I was like, as a mother, to teach your daughter that, and, like, how generational, that'll begin to, like, move on and on and on and on, like, right? Like, so, like, her daughter's now learning, yeah, we have power. We put it on display, and we cut people's heads off when they don't listen to what we want. She had an opportunity, right? Like, if we're in God's kingdom, the contrast would be, no, let's forgive. Let's do the right thing. What's the generous thing to do here? Set him free, but that wasn't on display. And this is just a display of how sin, I think, corrupts and destroys our families. Um, I know even in my own family that there is grudges that have been held that are, that are passed on to, to children. And maybe you guys have observed that, where a parent says, yeah, we're angry at that so-and-so because, and then the kids are angry about that same situation because of it. You, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? You've heard that. And it just keeps going. And then the kids grow up going, yeah, we're angry at them because they hurt mom a long time ago. It's like, couldn't we have just ended that? Couldn't that have just been forgiven? Couldn't we just move forward with love, with grace? 
And I think that's how sin works in our lives. And this isn't about male or female. This is about like sin leading us into destructive patterns in our families. And I think we have opportunity as parents, um, as a community, as a church, to have a new perspective of what it looks like to be the kind of community that Jesus invites us into of love, right? Of acceptance, of inclusion that says, we're not going to hold a grudge. We're going to love people. We're going to be including. And so um, I just really wanted to point that out because I was so convicted as I was reading that of like just how evil can really destroy families and really destroy generations. And we have an opportunity to have a new vision of what this world can look like. Um, Jesus said continually, like, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that's us having a vision of, like, God's kingdom here, God's kingdom in our families, God's kingdom in how we raise 12-year-old girls, God's kingdom in how we begin to impact the community that we live in. Um, And so I think we just need to continually have this vision. And that's just, like, the two questions I want to, like, close with is, do we have a vision of the kingdom of God? A kingdom that like says we're going to be loving. And then do we have a desire to see it lived out here? Because we all have that option of like we're going to choose to push into evil, resentment, death, destruction, people's heads being cut off, all that. That's a picture of of death and decay, right? But we have a vision of beauty, of love, of generosity. And that's what we're invited into. And so I want to share this quick, um, I think, this video, because I think it's, uh, you've probably seen it already many times. Um, As I'm flipping through Instagram, it popped up for some reason. And I was like, this is such a beautiful illustration of, I think, the fact that sometimes we don't realize we can change and we don't think that we can be the kind of community or the kind of people that live in God's kingdom, that treat people differently, because we're like, that's really difficult to forgive someone. It's really difficult to do that. And um, is that clip in there? Does it work? I don't know if you guys, you probably recognize it really quick once you see it. Um, how many of you guys have seen this? Raise your hand. Okay, a couple of us. Um, very narrow road, if you're listening on the podcast. Um, very narrow road, person trying to do like the Austin Powers U-turn because it's only like a foot of play to be able to turn around, but it's like a thousand foot cliff on the left side and a giant wall on the other side. And um, so it's like the 50-point turn to try and turn around on this road, and it seems impossible. Um, and I think that's sometimes how we view our lives, is that we're like, I don't know how I'm going to turn this thing around. I don't know how I'm going to live differently. And I can't imagine pulling that off. Like, I couldn't imagine that. Like, my wife is fearful of heights. Like, she's like, my hands are sweating just watching this. Um, and... Uh, and she was like, nope, I just get out of the car and walk back. We're done. <laughs> car stay in there. Uh, but end up driving away, right? Because 50-point turn, and they just pull it off. And I think that there's um, an opportunity for us um, to shift and to change and begin to move into a new way of living that doesn't look as destructive as what we read here, right? That lives into this kingdom in a beautiful way. And this is the last thing I want to share is I was listening to this podcast this week um, and I put a link into the, the, um, the bulletin there so you guys can watch it or listen to it, sorry. And I would highly recommend you listen to it because what 
Travian Shorters, um, I'm gonna describe who he is and what's going on, um, describes as a way of framing the way that we look at the world and the way that we interact with the world that we live in. Um, requires this thing called asset framing versus deficit framing. And as I heard this, I was like, this makes perfect sense. Because when we begin to look at the world as evil, broken, destroyed, um, that's how we're gonna perceive everything. And what he says, and to kind of describe a little better, is if we label issues and challenges that humanity faces, that's all we're ever gonna see. And if we're gonna live into God's kingdom, we have to shift our mindset. We have to think, we have to cognitively think differently about the problems that we face personally and the world that we live in. And, um, and so the example of how this is played out is like we talk about investing in poverty, right? And he says like, you're not investing in poverty. You don't want more poverty. You're not investing in that. You're investing in people who don't want to live starving, right? You're, you're investing in people that want to flourish and have life to the full. That's how you phrase it. Not investing in poverty or brokenness or destroyed lives. It's No, I'm investing in people that want to achieve better, that want to live a better life, live life to the full. And um, and this is from a podcast called On Being with Krista Tippett. And um, On Being is a great podcast to listen to. Um, so again, I throw the, threw the notes in there and the link to it. And I would just encourage you to, to listen to it this week. Um, but the description that I think sums up and hopefully I can convince you to listen to this podcast because it's too much to like sum up right now um, the description in the podcast I'm going to read it because I think it does a beautiful job of hopefully convincing you all to listen to it okay um, does a good job of, of shifting our mindset to think about how we view the world and how we shift to kingdom living it says Trayvon Shorters is a visionary who had seen and named a task that is necessary for all healing and building for every vision and plan whether in a family or a world, to flourish. It's called asset framing, and it works with both new understandings of the brain and an age-old understanding of the real-world power of those words we use. The words we use have power. The stories we tell and the way we name things and people. From everyday social media to hallowed modes of journalistic, academic, and policy analysis, we have a habit of seeing deficits, seeing the problems, seeing the brokenness, seeing the things that are, aren't working, and of defining people in need in terms of their problems. This has not only doomed some of our best efforts to failure, it leaves all of us prone to cynicism and hopelessness. And what's exciting about Trabian Shorter's proposition is not only more effective, it is simple and straightforward to grasp. It is in and of our of itself dignifying and renewing. The main question you might be asking at the end of this is why. And uh, at this advanced stage of our species, it took us so long to learn to asset frame. He understands that when we begin to see people for their potential, for the thing that they ultimately desire, it's going to change how we view the world. It's going to change how we live in this world. And so I would encourage you to listen to this because I think it really adds to what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom. And, uh, but I want to, again, go back to these questions. Do we envision the kingdom in a way that wants to bring life, flourishing, goodness to people's lives? And if we do... Are we living that out 
today? Are we living that out here? And that's just like the question I want us to roll into this week. And again, listen to the podcast and let's continue the conversation. So let me pray. Father, thank you so much for difficult passages like these that help us distinguish between good and evil, help us distinguish between the evil that, that wants to rule and reign and destroy and the goodness of your kingdom that is bringing life, that is transforming us from the inside out, that is teaching us what it means to forgive, what it means to bring healing and not heads on a platter. Lord, we want to be people that love. We want to be people that see the difference between the good and the evil and call it out and live into it uh, more and more every single day. We love you, Jesus, and thank you for those that are here that are digging and leaning in and and wanting to to grow more and what it means to love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So uh, let me read our benediction, and then we'll just have some time of coffee, and I just encourage you to answer that question of what that vision looks like. So rejoice in knowing that we never walk alone the grace and peace of Christ walking beside us, that he's guiding and he's protecting us. Let's share this comfort with one another. Let's feel his presence every single moment of every single day as we leave this place and go into all the areas that we all go into. So grace and peace.